This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. For September 15th, 2022, it's the What If Ukraine Wins edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C. I'm joined... From New Haven, Connecticut, star of New York Times Magazine, maybe a star at Yale University Law School. Don't know if you're a star at Yale University Law School, Emily. Yeah, not so much. Bit player at Yale University Law School, Emily Bazelon. Hello. Hello, bit player. I'll take it. And from New York City, the star of any room he walks into, but he doesn't like to walk into rooms very much, is John Dickerson of CBS News. And his new show, wait, John, I've, the new show is called... CBS News Primetime. We, we didn't have the music queued up this time. Well, people will have to just tune in at 7 p.m. Eastern and, uh, to um, listen to the music and experience it really in the, in the moment, the live music. Orchestra plays it every night. That's where your budget went. That's where you... <laughs> <laughs> See, the orchestra. <laughs> That's orchestra right. Was a, it was a bold, creative choice, but... Maybe not great for the <laughs> Exactly. We've got it. But we've got an oboe. This week on the GabFest, we will talk with Ann Applebaum about Ukraine's lightning victories. Then, is Lindsey Graham's proposed national abortion ban a gift to Democrats? Then, we'll talk about the New York Times' extraordinary story about the lack of basic education at Hasidic schools in New York City. Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. In recent days, Ukraine's army has driven Russian forces out of large swaths of northeastern Ukraine, reversing months of Russian gains in just a few days. Russia still controls much of the south and east of the country. We are joined by Anne Applebaum of The Atlantic, who has been writing and reporting on the war and who's just back from Kiev. Uh, Anne, welcome back. I'm glad you're here safely. So let's start with the basic kind of strategic question. Why have Ukrainian forces made such rapid gains and how much more territory can they reasonably be expected to gain? So there's a, there's a technical answer to that question. And then there's a deeper answer. I think the technical answer is that um, they, they did a little bit of strategic deception. They said they were going to be attacking in the South. They did lots of telegraphing of that view. Um, The Russians moved a lot of their troops to the South preparing for this onslaught. And then instead they attacked in the North um, where the Russians were not prepared and where there were uh, troops who who didn't want to fight, essentially, um, and who ran away. I mean, I, I talked to the deputy commander of the Ukrainian military on Saturday morning, and he said the biggest surprise of the whole thing was that the Russians weren't actually even fighting back in that area. They literally left their tanks and their armored vehicles, and they changed into civilian clothes in some cases and left. Um, and I think that points to a, one of the underlying truths about the war, which is that the Ukrainians are more motivated. They're fighting for their country, for their existence, actually, as a nation and as a people. They're fighting for their own homes. And many of the Russians who are there, um, especially the, 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 the sort of lower level forces, are really just fighting for good salaries. Um, and they don't necessarily want to die for a war that they that they don't believe in. And the Ukrainians also have another huge advantage, which is that there is a there is a serious resistance movement now in all of the occupied territories. Um, and the resistance movement isn't like guys in a basement with guns hidden in the forest, although there's a little bit of that. It's 
old ladies walking down the street who take photographs of Russian, um, you know, headquarters or Russian um, ammunition dumps and then load them up to websites where the Ukrainian army can read them. And so the the, the Ukrainians simply have excellent intelligence. Some of it, of course, comes from the U.S., but some of it is local. Uh, and that's also, I think, made a big difference. Um, there is now a kind of information blackout on what's going on. And so I don't know how the answer to the second part of your question, which is how much farther they can go and how fast. Um, but it certainly seems that the Russians are going to be unable to rely on holding territory anywhere in Ukraine. Wow, that is just so stunning to me that this is where we are. I mean, I totally understand and I it's very moving to think that how much troops care about how they're fighting matters this much. How concerned are you about Putin just ratcheting up warfare? Because obviously there are other tools at Russia's disposal. There's this nuclear facility that is under Russian control in Ukraine. And then there's just the prospect of nuclear weapons and I'm sure other um steps before that that could happen. And um, I wonder what you think about that side of the set of possibilities in front of Putin. So we've been talking about Russia using nuclear weapons and the danger of that since the beginning of the war. Um, it was a very intense conversation about that in Washington in March. Um, the, the conversation has changed a little bit because particularly when the Russians withdrew their troops from Kiev it became clear that they're not irrational. In other words, Putin is operating on a, on a different set of principles and he probably has some different information than we do, maybe some worse information, but he's not insane. You know, he's not, he doesn't seem to have a death wish and he doesn't want to bring the world to an end. Um, he also has other things to worry about. So the use of a nuclear weapon would immediately, remember it would break a seven decade taboo um, and it would immediately make him a kind of international pariah um, I mean, I don't have deep insight into his relationship with Xi other than what I can see in the newspapers, but it can't be something the Chinese want the Russians to do, you know, for example. Um, it can't be something that would be good for his status in Africa and the Middle East, where he also is interested in in having influence and maintaining contacts. Um, and we also know, um, and I don't know any details, but I do know that the U.S. has made various deterrent threats to Putin. I don't know how exactly we would respond if he either used a nuclear weapon on a Ukrainian city or whether he exploded one in the air, which is, by the way, something that they've exercised in the past, just as a kind of scare tactic. Um, but I'm told that we would do something that would be well beyond what we've done so far. Um, and so there is some, there is a deterrence factor, there is a taboo factor, all those things seem to work against it. Um, I mean, you can't exclude it 100%, but, you know, it, it does seem to be something that the Russians suddenly start talking about whenever they're losing or whenever they want to discourage us or whenever they want us to um, not to, you know, not to send troops. They did it very loudly at the beginning of the war, um, and they've just started doing it again now. Um, and it, it, you know, the question is how, you know, should we be blackmailed by that or should we rely on the power of our own deterrence? And how much does... Um strength lead to strength in a situation like this, both in your reading of what's happening on the ground in Ukraine, but also in Europe. Um, there's a funding fight in the Senate right now. And um, 
uh, Richard Shelby, the top Republican on the Appropriations Committee, said, you know, I don't know about funding the government, but let's make sure we get the money to the Ukrainians because they're doing really well right now. And so it was sort of the headlines were were encouraging them to at least this one Republican, but I think it's a more general sentiment, encouraging like, let's get even more stuff over the Ukrainians. Do you think there's anything like that in Europe? Um, in other words, they're doing well, so let's do even more than than we have been? Yes, there is something like that. Um, I mean, it's it's a little bit hampered by the fact that, uh, you know, the UK seems to have run out of weapons to give them. They don't have any more stuff. Um, uh, there's a huge, complicated, difficult argument inside Germany about what to give them and what not to give them that appears to be evolving and might even evolve in the next few days. Um, they've been giving them small arms and other kinds of equipment. By the way, the Germans have given a huge amount of money to Ukraine as well. Um, but they've been criticized for not giving, they have these very good modern tanks and they haven't given those yet. And the Ukrainians want them. Um, and that, and the, the success of Ukraine and the, you know, the, the partially also the fact that the Ukrainians seem to use these weapons very well. So when, you know, another factor, of course, in the, in the victory are these high Mars, these long range and very precise artillery that the Ukrainians can use to target, you know, the ammunition dumps that the little old ladies have taken pictures of. Um, so they have, you know, so they, they prove they can use these things and they're using them so far responsibly in the sense that they're not using them to, you know, attack Russia or doing anything um, nutty. So, so yes, I do think it will. To the extent that there are more weapons to be given in Europe, I think it's, it, this is an important part of the conversation. Yes. And you've written about the need to prepare for the possibility of Ukrainian victory what what does a Ukrainian victory actually mean? Is there a Ukrainian victory without Russia rejecting Putin's worldview? Uh, is there a Ukrainian victory where Putin survives? So, so first of all, to be clear that what Russia thinks is irrelevant. Russia has no impact on Putin. So Russia can reject Putin's worldview all it wants, but that doesn't have any, that's not a factor in a in that kind of autocratic state. So I think a victory isn't that hard to define. I mean, I suppose there's two or three levels of it. I mean, certainly a victory is Ukraine pushing the Russians out and retaining its borders as they were in February at February the 24th. And that's a clear victory and the war could end if that's achieved. There's another level of victory which is Ukraine um, also takes back territories that were won in 2014, including Crimea. Um, and the Ukrainians do talk about that and say they want to do that. I mean, but whether that's possible or whether that would that would be dependent on negotiations, I can't tell you right now. Um, but you are right to ask about Putin in this sense that it is very hard to see how, given how important this has been to Putin and how central it has been to his definition of who he is and what he wants his legacy to be, you know, that he wants to um, reconstitute some version of the Russian empire. Um, he wants to eliminate Ukraine as a nation, you know, all these things that he's said or others around him have said that he wants, you know, these would all be have shown to be unachievable. And it's very, it is very hard to see how, whether, you know, whether a simple victory or a more thorough victory, whether how, um, how he is not just totally discredited by that. And how there is not um, deep objections, again, not in the general public, but in his immediate entourage. Um, you know, the difficulty with making any predictions about Putin leaving or Putin falling out a window, as so many Russian businessmen now do, um, is that 
there is no mechanism for succession in Russia. And not only do we not know who would replace Putin, we didn't know who would decide. So who are the people who decide who the next president of Russia is? There's no such group of people. You know, there's in the Soviet Union, there was a Politburo. You know, there was a kind of communist party and it had structures and other leaders. And there isn't that in this system. Um, it's a it's a, as somebody said to me, you know, it's not a regime, it's a way of life. You know, it's more like a mafia state with Putin as the, as the chief Don, you know, and, and therefore there, there isn't an, an obvious successor, there isn't a Dauphin and, and so on. So it's very hard to imagine any of that. And then at the same time, as I said, it's also hard to see how he stays in power. Um, I mean, one of the things that has true, was true at the beginning of the war, maybe a little bit less true now, is that many people were worried that um, too great a Western involvement would mean, you know, the collapse of Putin and somehow the collapse of Russia. But I think that uh, the idea that there could be a better future without Putin or that some kind of political turbulence in Russia is a good thing um, is beginning to gain a little bit of currency, or I hope it is, uh, because um, Putin is the source of actually an enormous amount of instability in Europe and Africa and the Middle East. And having any different kind of Russian leadership, even if it's not a liberal democratic leadership, could be really good for everybody. How redefining would this be for the West if Ukraine wins? I mean, this is a conflict that has pretty much brought Europe and the United States and other Western allies together with, you know, China semi-aligned with Russia on the other side. Um, It just seems to me like this could be something that geopolitically has really broad consequences, even if Putin somehow stays in power, if he is seriously weakened? And, you know, should we think of this as commensurate with other major moments in history in which we see this kind of coalition come together and actually really make a difference? Or am I being kind of too heroic about it? No. So frankly, the impact of it would be so fantastic that I'm reluctant to even you know, say it will happen because it's almost too good to be true. So yes, I do think the the transatlantic alliance would be reinvigorated. The democratic camp in the world would be reinvigorated. Um, there would all be all kinds of psychological effects. So all those fans of Putin out there and fans of so-called strong leadership and, you know, macho, you know, methods of running your country and all the fans of Putin's you know, pretty fake, but nevertheless pretty loud traditionalist conservatism, his homophobia, you know, his anti, you know, his misogyny, all that, um, you know, those people would take a serious blow. And it would be very good for not just liberal democracy and not just democracy and not just, you know, American America's role in the world, but it would be very good for for the future political debate in many countries. Should read Anne Applebaum on the Ukraine war in the Atlantic, and you should read her about anything she writes about, really. <laughs> Thank you. Slate Plus members, of course, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. You go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. I think there's also a special offer as we approach the midterms. You can get it at a real discount, just $15 for three months to get you up to the midterms if you become a Slate Plus member. And we do bonus segments, of course, on the GabFest. And this week's bonus segment, we did it. We outlasted the queen So we're going to sing God Save the King several times and talk about the monarchy. South Carolina Republican Lindsey Graham 
this week said he would introduce into the Senate a bill to impose a federal abortion ban at 15 weeks. Graham's legislation would allow states to keep their stricter bans in place, but force states which do not have those strict bans, blue states mainly, to change their laws, which in some cases allow abortion past 20 weeks in some cases. Uh, Abortion is a contentious issue. Uh, Post-Dobbs, America's got to make some decisions. And the first thing I would say about uh, the Dobbs decision is that abortion is not banned in America. It's left up to elected officials in America to define the issue. You have states have the ability to do it at the state level, and we have the ability in Washington to speak on this issue if we choose. I have chosen to speak. So, John, why did Graham propose this? Does he somehow think this is a favor to fellow Republicans coming into the election? Well, first of all, it's a head scratcher um, because, you know, the normal playbook is when the approval rating of the incumbent president is below 50 percent. And while Biden's has been up a little bit, it is still quite low. And while people are unsatisfied with the economy and the day that inflation numbers surprised economists and continue to be high and that core inflation looks incredibly persistent, you don't want to do anything to change the topic. So, and you specifically don't want to do anything to drive the topic into the one that's the worst for Republicans because it's on the turf of the other party and it's been demonstrated in elections that it is turning out Democratic voters and turning off suburban Republican voters. So all of that argues against doing this. The only counter argument is that um, this is an effort to show that the Democrats' position on abortion is extreme um, And while that's hard to um, embrace as a strategy, given everything previously that I said, because remember, in the turf theory of politics, when you're talking about the other side's issue, no matter what you're saying, you're losing. I think the only possible potential argument in support of what Graham is doing is that um, this is an election about enthusiasm of both sides. And all he's trying to do is tick up the enthusiasm on his side a little bit. Um, and that's all that will be necessary in a year where there are other advantages for uh, traditional historical advantages for Republicans. So he doesn't have to win the issue. He just has to energize his side by showing that that Republicans, um, uh, you know, still care about the rights of the unborn, as they would put it. Um, that, again, is not the majority opinion of people who look at politics, uh, that Graham has a smart strategy here. So, Emily, he's demonstrating enraging although not at all surprising hypocrisy graham like so many people uh before the dobbs decision just said well we we want this left to the states uh and now that it's been thrown back to the states he is like no we want it nationalized and i suppose for many people this is a matter of deep moral principle they consider this infanticide wrongly in my view so it's not really a surprise that they you know, when they won on one territory, they seek to switch the grounds to win everywhere else. But it is deeply hypocritical. I think there's a more fundamental disarray going on uh, among abortion opponents. And I have to say, I am surprised by how disastrous the politics have been for them. I remember we talked about this when Dobbs came down, and I just had a kind of... um I don't know, grim view of how this is going to work out for people who believe in abortion rights. I just am really interested in how much this seems to be galvanizing. I mean, all those women 
registering to vote in Kansas, a red state, has a Democratic governor, but a deeply red state, and various other signs that the politics are not breaking the Republicans' way. I think what you see with Graham here is an effort to placate and work with the anti-abortion groups. I'm not sure why exactly he is the person doing that, but I can see that they are frustrated um, that they're not getting more. And I don't know how much this matters, but South Carolina itself, even though it's a deeply conservative state, is having trouble passing an abortion ban. They introduced a very far-reaching model bill from the National Right to Life Committee that would go so far as to make it a crime to provide information about how to get an abortion. But that didn't pass. And so far, I think neither has anything else. You know, most of the abortion bans we have in place across the country at this point are old laws that went back into effect automatically, right? Which is different from passing a new law. So that's just another sign of the politics. I mean, Emily, though, don't you think it's one of these cases where Dobbs was in a cataclysmic defeat for supports supporters of abortion it has completely changed the landscape of abortion in this country it has made it vastly harder for people to get abortions in much of the country and it's an absolute victory for the anti-abortion forces that have been preparing for it for decades so if if there is a political cost to it and seems like there is some political cost like it's well worth bearing if you care about this issue. I mean, it feels like this was like, this is what you accumulate political capital for. This is what you, this is what you pack the Supreme Court for. This is why you do all this stuff to, to get this huge victory. And then you pay a political price, whether the political price is, you know, the midterms, whether it lasts longer than that, whether they even pay a significant one, we don't even know. But it seems to me like this is, a, if, if you told all these or groups, like you can have this, you can have this victory and the, the price is that there'll be some disarray and you're going to alienate some some voters afterwards. They would have said, great, take it. We will take this deal 100 times out of 100. I think that's very smart and can be totally true. And yet it can still be a big puzzler why Lindsey Graham is saddling up to the bar and saying, I'd like to pay double that price, right? Like, and that now what Emily was getting at, I think, could possibly be true is that this is good local politics for Graham in his specific state and that it may be an attempt to narrow cast to those um, most fervent um, anti-abortion rights members of the party who are saying you're still you know, you're not continuing to fight for this issue. There's more ways you can fight. And sort of let let Graham narrowcast that and then let Mitch McConnell say, well, most of my members believe this should be left to the states. I, I think you could get you could say, well, McConnell knows what you know, McConnell knows what's going on here. He's not that unhappy because it's pretty rare that an individual senator would go take the biggest hot button issue and just run his own play in the middle of a super closely divided Senate where any race can be overturned um, and and lose Republicans their chance to take over. I mean, and remember Richard Murdoch, who ran in 2012 for the Senate in Indiana, he said that God intended rape pregnancies to, to be carried to term. And that created a huge headache for Republican candidates across the country. So on this issue, it can brand the it can brand the party outside of individual races. So the spillover effects of of doing and saying things that voters don't like about abortion rights has been proved before. So that makes this a particularly risky gambit. Um, and, and again, why it's um, why it's puzzling. I don't think there was a deep acknowledgement 
on the right that there was going to be a big political price to pay. I think state by state, people probably thought, like, we should be fine. You know, we have these laws. They're going to go whip back into effect the minute Dobbs comes down and people are going to go along with them. And maybe there'll be a bit of a ding in November. But you know, the state-by-state nature of the court's ruling is going to be helpful politically. And Graham just completely blew that, right? And now all these um, Senate candidates who'd been downplaying the issue are being asked directly, what do you think about this? How are you going to vote on that? I think it totally remains to be seen whether there is a political price to pay in the midterm elections. We we saw, yes, in Kansas, on a vote on the specific issue, the, the uh, abortion rights supporters won a resounding victory. But whether when it comes to votes in all of these extremely gerrymandered congressional districts, when it comes to Senate votes, whether it's going to to be a key factor, I just don't think we know yet. And I don't. And again, just to repeat the thing I'm saying, I think even if you were, you know, the most fervent supporter of Dobbs, you would take that like happily. Like you would, I think you would accept it, even if you, even if it's a slightly stronger reaction than you thought, you would accept it, that reaction with with delight because it's such a victory. Right. Although you might not think Lindsey Graham getting up there and grandstanding about a fifteen week ban that's national is worth anything. Though the group seemed to be behind it yesterday, so what do I know? I mean, they were like, the Senate has been a disaster, and now it's turning a corner. So they thought they were getting something. We should note also there have been special elections in which Democrats have outperformed Biden's Biden's vote in those districts since the Dobbs decision, which is another piece of data people have pointed to as a proof that voters are turning out based on the issue of abortion and voting for Democrats, um, which is a which has been one of the questions is whether there's a transitive property in Kansas. They're voting specifically on the issue of abortion. The question is whether you vote for candidates on that issue. So again, it, I mean, it certainly remains to be seen, but there is another, there is data point that it does have that transference. Um, can I just say one other thing is that on the theory, when you asked David about fascism last week, and I went back to my old theory, if you were Democrats trying to come up with a message that it, that it seems to me one is that, the, the party you're running against always goes one ex, one more step. Whatever whatever you as a Democrat think they're going too far, there is always a plus one where they go beyond. And this seems to be in keeping with that, which is they Dobbs gets passed and Republicans say this should be left to the states. And then, oh, nope, not left to the states anymore. We're going to take it one more. We're going to have a national ban. It seems to me if you're a Democrat running or you're a Democratic candidate or party trying to come up with a message there's a way in which this issue can be threaded through a whole host of things. And since we know negative partisanship is so much a part of elections, it's curious that Democrats haven't tried that gambit to kind of sow this into a larger um, message. John, do you think that if the Republicans do take the Senate, that Graham's bill gets a vote or or McConnell will be like, you know what, this is just not why bother? I mean, in, in some ways I was thinking about this and I was in some ways I was thinking actually passing this and let, looking forward to having it vetoed would be fine. That would that's a that's a good bark at the postal truck uh, game because they can have wouldn't have to with, live with the consequences of it and get to get a get a vote. It's the um, vote yes, hope no, as opposed to vote no, hope yes. Um, so you you vote yes for your local constituency. You show your uh, anti-abortion rights supporters that you're on their team, but you know that it actually won't go anywhere and that that will remove the issue as a salient, you know, and, and you can say to your, those supporters, 
in the future, look, my hands are tied. There's a Democratic president. Let's get a Republican president in there. So, yes, that actually seems like a um, I mean, to think of it this in the awful um, kind of calculus of politics, um, which is um, can I ask Emily a question of you, which is just on the policy of this um, at 15 weeks? Um, the majority of pregnancies um, that are aborted happen before 15 weeks, but that doesn't. Can you just re-educate us on um, why 15 weeks um, or just the, the kind of the medical aspects of choosing that time, 15 weeks, and and how it would affect reproductive rights? More than 90% of abortions happen before 15 weeks, but there is no good medical reason for that um, particular limit. Uh, Graham claimed that it was about fetal pain. That is completely at odds with the scientific evidence. Um, the American College of OBGYN says that it's around 24 weeks that there's evidence that a fetus can feel pain. So that was, I would say, um, just a lie on Graham's part. 15 weeks happened to be the gestational age limit in the Mississippi law that the Supreme Court upheld in Dobbs. Of course, the court also let states go far beyond 15 weeks. I think a tricky thing just in people's lives is that often you find out about a fetal anomaly after 15 weeks. And so in that sense, it leaves a lot of, um, you know, people trying to make this decision in a terrible position. And there was a moment at the Graham press conference when a woman who carried a baby with a fetal anomaly beyond 15 weeks spoke up and Graham just really had nothing to offer her. Here's what I would say. The world pretty much has spoken on this issue. Uh, the developed world has said at this stage into the, the pregnancy, uh, the child feels pain. And, and we're saying we're going to join the rest of the world and not be like Iran. As to your particular case, there'll be exceptions for life of the mother and rape and incest. But, uh, and I think it's a demonstration of how much anguish this kind of legislation could cause. There was a fascinating an exhaustive investigation by the New York Times this week, which found that schools for Hasidic students in New York State are failing to educate their students in the basics of English, math, and science while receiving hundreds of millions of dollars in government aid. The schools, which serve about 50,000 boys, I think, have an intense curriculum of religious study, which is conducted primarily in Yiddish and in Hebrew, a bit of Aramaic in there too. Secular study, including study of the English language and math is tacked on, if it's tacked on at all, just for a very short period at the end of the day, only for a few years of of your school time. And it's almost always taught by people who are marginally capable of teaching it. These are schools that serve Hasidic Orthodox Jews, of course, which is a not all Orthodox Jews. It's a group of about 200,000 in New York State. They wear the traditional 19th century costume. They're visually quite identifiable and tend to live in very insular, extremely close-knit communities that are guided by very powerful rabbis. I found the story really, really interesting and, and 
I have very complicated feelings about it, and I'm looking forward to talking about it. Emily, what was your reaction to the story? Were the were the two Jews on this panel to to start? We'll get your reaction in a minute, John. Wheel in the goyim. We'll let you talk in a moment. I have this really strong memory from childhood. I think it was like maybe 11 or 12 of spending a weekend at the home of uh, a Hasidic family in Borough Park. And it was incredibly different from my pretty secular Jewish family. And I, what I remember so much was the intense sense of family and community. There were just a ton of people and everyone was spending every minute of the weekend together. And yet also the roles of girls and boys and men and women were really different. And even though I was pretty little, that struck me um, strongly. So I look at stories like this and I just think, wow, this is an incredibly tight community. They have succeeded in voting as a political bloc and really shaking down the government for hundreds of millions of dollars that are going to private religious education. And what troubles me about this is that it's not the kids who are making the choice to get this incredibly inadequate education by the standards of the secular world, right? So I think it's totally possible that most of these families feel really good about these schools and that a lot of these kids grow up and they continue to be part of this community because it has a strong continuity to it. And yet it is also true that this is like a form of it's a trap. It means that you can't leave. And the stories in the New York Times piece of, you know, Hasidim who had tried to leave and found themselves just utterly unable to get a job, to have life skills, really to be literate, and how devastating that was for them, that really hit me because that wasn't based on choices they made as adults. It was based on choices their parents made for them when they were children. And so that was the part I found really heartbreaking. So the law requires, New York law requires all schools, whether private or not, whether accepting government and money or not, to teach New York children the basics of math and English, uh, maybe science. They're not doing that. Um, when when these schools, the kids in these schools take standardized tests, they perform at levels that are so unbelievably low. They are literally almost off the charts low. You always wondered who was that one people who are getting like the first percentile on those standardized tests. It's these kids. They take these standardized tests because they're required to do it to get certain kinds of government aid. But no one, none of these students are passing basic tests of of English and math. So so by state law, they're clearly failing. Um, Emily, I had a, basically, the, I guess, a very similar reaction. I mean, it is it is absolutely true that these communities are they're insular, they're anti secular, they are uh, highly restrictive. They, the roles that women are put into are often quite restrictive. They've used political power in ways which you could say, oh, it's just a legitimate use of political power. But this form of block voting is 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 pernicious and does cause politicians to behave in ways that they shouldn't and politicians to give them a pass in ways that um, are pernicious. And it and and as you say, they're making decisions for children that redound to the rest of their life and make them don't not giving them tools to be able to function outside their community. They're forcing them essentially to stay in their community. But yet it is also true that these are highly functional communities with tremendous mutual aid, enormous life satisfaction. And it is, I, I mean, I guess I come to the feeling like that America is sort of built on insular communities that reject rules and standards. And, and the anomaly of this Hasidic community is that it's urban, it votes very powerfully, 
And it's not like cute and out in rural Pennsylvania, like the Amish, you have a lot of the same kind of traits if you dug down into it and they're ta- and they're taking advantage of government funding. But it's, it is a sort of tradition in American life to have groups like this and to give them sort of a pass, even when it restricts the lives of children and, and, and affects the lives of children in profound ways. Isn't it, but isn't it the distinction between what you're talking about and asking for, um, state and, and city money. So in other words, um, if you're going to put up a wall, uh, and keep out the secular world, then, then taxpayer money shouldn't flow over that wall. Um, and if it does, then the standards of required, the standards required by the secular government, um, should apply. Well, but, but actually, John, the laws are, have nothing to do with whether they're getting government money or not. The laws about education of children have nothing to do with whether they're getting government funds. So, Wait, I feel like we're mixing some things up. So the funds are not coming in to fund the schools directly. Exactly. They're coming in for things like childcare at the end of the day and, you know, lunch for poor kids and various other things. However, when, once you have government funding for private religious schools, you're in the territory or you should be of the establishment clause, which I think is what John meant. Yes. I mean, so... It seems to me that this is more than, say, the Amish. It's there's a there's a tie to the secular world that comes with and that brings along with it some of these standards. But your larger point is a really interesting one that the the benefits of the community are not only um, although the Times has lots of instances where they where people who are members of the community did not have good outcomes. But you should also compare the benefits of the community to the other community it's being compared to, which is public school outcomes in New York City and state, and then just societal outcomes in New York City and state. Um, when you're trying to decide, when you're making this evaluation about what's the purpose of education and and whether what they're doing in creating these communities um, is so awful compared to what happens outside those walls. Can I say one more just maybe clarifying thing, legally speaking? So there's this really famous case called Wisconsin versus Yoder from 1972. It's a Supreme Court case. And it was a case in which um, there were Amish kids and they were supposed to keep going to school beyond eighth grade, just like everybody else. And their parents sued and said, no, we don't want them. We want them to, you know, work on our farms. And the Supreme Court said, you parents get to decide. You have control. There is a caveat to this ruling by the Supreme Court in Yoder. They assumed that the Amish kids would have learned basic writing and math by eighth grade. So the idea is that there is, quote, some degree of education that's necessary to participate in our democracy. But still, ending education in eighth grade, that is really limiting for kids. So that's really fundamental for this principle. However, those were not government-funded private schools. So it's a, it's about parental right of control of education as opposed to this funding question we were talking about. No, I, I, I know. I understand that. I guess what I'm trying to say is that whether or not these schools are getting government, any form of government funding, there is a New York state law that requires them to give the basic education to children, and they are not doing that. So I kind of think like this, the, the issue to me is not really, are they getting government funding or not? There is, a, there is a chicanery they're going through to exploit the political system the way all groups do to get, you know, to get benefits, to get their child care center funded, 
And that's ugly, but it's, a, it's more or less a political process. To me, the question is, if you said they are not getting government funding, would it be okay for them to not educate their children in English and math? I mean, under the Supreme Court rule yes. in Yoder, the answer is yes. I would not, say no, I, not, personally. Not, not, I'm not, I'm, I'm saying as a human being, as a citizen, as a citizen. So, of the John, United you States. think the answer is yes, or you were answering so, anything? I think the answer, I think the answer is yes. yes, but, yeah. but I think, but, but, but play out the alternative case. The alternative case is that there is a societal good for all citizens to be sufficiently educated to some minimum level in a way that if they're not, it, it causes harm to other people. And I think the argument inside the Hasidic community, as you know, I'm very deeply ingrained <laughs> and familiar with their patterns of thinking, um, but would be, hey, you know, things aren't so good outside the walls of this community. Are you sure that insisting that we have these minimum standards um, is going to make us less of a threat to the collective? Because all the people in the rest of the collective are forced to hold uphold these standards and their lives are less, you know, T- tightly knit than ours are. I also think there's just a question of how you could make the opposite rule actually governable. So I think Yoder was wrongly decided. I think it's deeply unfair to kids to have their pa- let their parents take them out of school in eighth grade. And I think some of the homeschooling that happens in this country is to total disadvantage of kids. Um, I'm just I'm really skeptical of that because the kids aren't freely making the decision. However, I don't know how the government could possibly figure out how to enforce rules, really. I mean, it has enough trouble just getting people to go to school, especially post-COVID. So that part of it makes me think, because I'm wary of a lot of government intrusion in the lives of families, especially families that seem to be not abusing their children, that um, I'm wrong. Like, even though it really bothers me that these kids are getting such an incredibly terrible education, I'm not exactly sure what the alternative is. I don't think breaking up this community would would be a net benefit at all. And that's, then I go back to the funding question, David, even though I agree with you, it's secondary. Then I just go back to like, okay, but taxpayers shouldn't be paying for this. Now let's go to cocktail chatter. Uh, when you're, you're ending your Sabbath with a strong drink, Emily, what are you going to be chattering about? So, um, I am watching with, um, some fascination and concern, an effort to impeach the district attorney of Philadelphia, Larry Krasner, by the Pennsylvania legislature. So uh, my sister Dana works for Larry Krasner. Um, I should say that up front. What I find really troubling about this, and it's uh, the second example of late because Ron DeSantis did this to a prosecutor in Florida, it's another branch of government coming in and saying that a duly elected prosecutor who is doing something um, progressive, basically, is not fit for office. So the accusations of the legislature in Pennsylvania, which is controlled by Republicans, is that Krasner is um, guilty of a, quote, dereliction of duty because there has been an increase in shootings and homicides in Philadelphia, and they're blaming his policies for that. Of course, he deeply disputes that. His reelection was led by communities in parts of the city that have um, a high crime rate. And so you can also argue that the communities who are the most affected by violence are supportive of his policies. But that doesn't matter because this has become a kind of political stunt in 
Pennsylvania. And this week, what happened was that Krasner said he wouldn't comply with a subpoena the legislature issued that was like incredibly invasive, asked for a ton of documents. He had gone to court to argue that there was a separation of powers issue here. And then they voted that he was in contempt before that court ruled. There were a bunch of Democrats, including from Philadelphia, that supported that contempt vote. And they said they were doing that to kind of protect the prerogatives of the legislature. But This is just like uh, dangerous territory to be stepping into of, you know, across for partisan reasons, effectively, um, people in one branch of government deciding to oust someone in another branch. It's just not the way our system was designed to work. And to me, it suggests a certain amount of desperation on the parts of Pennsylvania Republicans that they're trying to make this an election issue for November. Um, And there you do have to have a two thirds vote in the legislature, um, in at least one branch in Pennsylvania to impeach Krasner. But the governor, who is a Democrat, does not have a say. So, you know, this is one to watch. John, what is your chatter? It's a double book chatter. Uh, One is The Slate Reads coming up. Ada Calhoun's uh, also a poet, just letting you know that's coming. Um, My conversation with her. The other is a book that I um, uh, came upon... uh, George Saunders is um, a swim in a pond in the rain, um, which is about he's an English teacher in Syracuse. And the book is about um, Russian short stories. But most important, it is about his view on how to read literature. Um, And I found it incredibly captivating. And even though I studied all of this in college and have pretty much since, um, I was just gobbling it up and I haven't finished um, reading it, but it's... um, it's just a delight, and he's a delight, and it's useful and um, expanding and uh, just sharpens one's life of noticing and is just a joy. My chatter, uh, very self-absorbed, also very Jewish. But actually, first, um, uh, very, also very self-absorbed. We're hiring a vice president of revenue at CityCast. So if you want to work to build a new media business and podcasts and newsletters and work with me very closely to build that and have ideas for how to build a really successful business in in media with what we're doing with these local podcasts and newsletters, please reach out to me uh, or go to citycast.fm slash jobs. It's an amazing big job here at CityCast. Okay. Uh, but my self-absorbed chatter. So there has been um, a bunch this week with the, the death of the queen, which we're going to talk about on Slate Plus, about um, every every uh, particular district of the world that had a relationship with the queen has discussed it. And no, uh, no surprise that Jews have also been interested in their relationship with the queen. And there have been a bunch of articles pointing out that there is this roi- the royal family has a strong connection to circumcision. It was brought, circumcision was uh, a, a habit that the British royal family practiced, even though it was not at all widespread in England as a whole. It was brought by George I to England. It was continued by Victoria and then continued by Elizabeth. And it's sort of, you, it's, when you think about it, it's not surprising. It's hygienic. It's, it's uh, this anointed by God. Uh, we, we, uh, we, the royal family of Britain, are anointed by God just the way that Abraham it was anointed by God. Uh, the Germanic heritage, Germany has a strong circumcision tradition. So it's not that surprising it ended up as a, as a tradition within the royal family. But so there, these stories came out that King Charles was circumcised by a London moil named Jacob Snowman, who was known as the Royal Moil. And 
and so there's why did they use a moil the royal family used a moil because as my urologist college roommate says if you want a circumcision done right you don't get a urologist you get a moil because moils have done a ton of them they're really good at it like they they are excellent um and so when i saw this i started excitedly bragging including on twitter that i too was circumcised by the moil who had docked uh king charles until it was pointed out to me that actually that royal moil had died in 1959 11 years before i was born and upon investigation with my mother it turned out that i was in fact circumcised because i was born in london just even though i'm an american i was born circumstantially in london but in fact that i had been circumcised by the successor as royal moil uh the london top moil who had circumcised prince edward and as my mother said, some son of the Duke of Kent. So, uh, so I was, I'm not, I don't have quite the intimate connection with the king that I'd hoped for. Uh, so, anyway, I enjoyed my my flirtation with that I danced with a man who danced with a girl who danced with the Prince of Wales uh, moment. You know, before you go judging a moil, you have to walk a moil in a moil's shoes. Anyway, listeners, you also have chatters, which I hope are not <laughs> about your flirtation with Moyles. Uh, please keep them coming at us by tweeting them to us at @slategabfest or emailing them to us at gabfest@slate.com. Uh, and we have one, which I think is a follow-up of, in fact, a chatter that I did last week, and it's from Andrea. Hi, Gabfest. My chatter this week is inspired by David's bread chatter from last week. The podcast Planet Money has an episode entirely on expiration dates. The episode is called Buy Buy, Sell Buy, Use Buy, and is the perfect companion to David's chatter. By the way, bread boxes are highly underrated. That is our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced by Shana Roth, back from her glamorous scandinavian vacation our researcher is bridget dunlap our theme music is by they might be giants ben richmond is senior director for podcast operations and alicia montgomery is a vp of audio for slate please follow us on twitter at at slate gabfest tweet chatter to us there for emily bazelon and john dickerson i'm david plotz we'll talk to you next week hello slate plus god save the king Queen Elizabeth is dead. Charles III is king. We, of course, uh, we're not. We didn't. We're not breaking that news. You may have heard about it. It has been a little bit in the papers recently. But we're going to talk about our relationship to monarchy and uh, how should we feel about it as Americans? Is it an anachronism? Is it good? I feel like we've had this conversation on the Gabfest maybe seven times before, but. You love the monarchy, and the rest of us are skeptical. So you better think of a different way in. Maybe we should talk about the death of the queen in particular because she did die, or Charles' ascension or something. Or the coverage of it for 19 days. Okay, well, why don't you guys, why why don't you guys, I don't, well, I haven't watched any of the coverage, but why don't you guys like the monarchy? What's, What's not to like about it? Constitutional monarchies are the most functional governments in the world. Did you read about how Charles like has just gotten incredibly wealthy and uh, off of this whole thing and um and just thought a little bit about how colonialist the entire tradition is? Like are you just hand-waving at all of that? Great Britain was pretty colonialist. I mean that was they that was a thing. They were an empire. But it was done in the name of the monarchy. I mean the students of the col- colonies were were 
forced to learn about the gl grand glory of the monarchy as a part of the system that was oppressing them. So in, I mean, so there's a, like a special, uh, pardon the pun, crown on the top of all this, which is the monarchy as this, as, for all the good symbolic, and we should obviously, I mean, the complexity is that there is extraordinary symbolism and power in the symbolism of Elizabeth's life. But for all the powerful good symbolism, there is also this other history that you can't just kind of cordon off from it. Oh, for sure. I mean, well, the entire history of Great Britain, yes, the United Kingdom, the fact that it was this this grand empire for all that was, you know, with with all the wickedness that that entails. It was a it was a great slaving state. It was uh, it did it committed horrible crimes. It was also a you know it had admirable ambitions too. It didn't. Not everything the British Empire did was terrible. But I'm not sure why that's a discussion of the monarchy. It's a discussion of great britain as a nation as a this imperial nation but why is that about the monarchy because the monarchy has this is like uh, is a um has this super powerful weight that rests in the symbolism of the monarchy it is this very powerful thing that stops traffic and that symbolizes the best of the uk's society but it also symbolizes all of the uk and so it all, you know, it's a concentrated bullion cube of all those things that you would ascribe to the UK sits in the sits in the monarchy, which is why when we're focusing on the monarchy and what it means and its incredible symbolic power, it has these at least two sides of that symbolic power. Right. Well, I mean, I guess then you would ask yourself, do you believe in general that the United Kingdom and Great Britain has been a force for good overall in the world? And I would say, yeah, I do. I do believe that. And if the if the monarchy is one aspect, one manifestation of that, then good. It that doesn't mean like that's not just to 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 downplay or anything all of the sure. incredible wickedness that was committed by the British Empire. But do what, if you think it was like in general overall an okay force in the world, then the monarchy should get some should get some of the shine as well as as the as well as the plaster. Sure, that's why I said it has, two, it has two sides. The question then is whether the monarchy was a necessary condition for that um, greatness in the world, whether the focusing power of the monarchy um, and the incredible connection it has with the lives of uh, its citizens, and by incredible connection, I mean the people who are walking for three miles to then stand in line for 24 hours to walk by uh, the casket. Um, I mean, that connection um, affects people in their lives in other ways, too. And whether uh, the UK could have could have been as powerful without it. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't take an it, it doesn't take a monarchy to be an imperial nation. Germany was an imperial nation in, you know, Hitler was an imperial force who was not a monarchy. The United States is an imperial nation without a monarchy. So then there's nothing inherent in the monarchy that is that is contributed to any of the good things the UK has done. I feel really uncertain about saying that net benefit for Britain, not within Britain, but externally. I mean, I just feel like co colonialism was like terrible, really terrible for much of the colonized places. And I'm not enough of a student of history to um, have a really good sense of overall, but I just feel like the evaluation here depends so much about whether you're thinking about inside the United Kingdom, 
Um, and what I mean by that is the British Isles and the way in which the monarchy created a sense of civic connectedness. I mean, when you think about um, World War II and other moments in which, you know, England, Wales, Scotland, Ireland are under assault and you this symbolism is very powerful and helpful internally. So that's one thing. And then there's like thinking about the rest of the world and India and Pakistan and Palestine and um, a lot of destruction. And I do think that the monarchy, while it's not a necessary precondition for imperialism, was really crucial to the way in which it played out, to the kind of particular aesthetics of it. And the monarchs, the families, gave themselves to that cause. So I just, I don't know. I feel like this is complicated. I mean, I, I'm, I'm probably going to get into a position where I say things, which I really regret. But like the world is filled with conquest and colonization, some of which is committed by monarchy, some of which isn't, and which is a mixed bag. Like you, Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson are huge beneficiaries of the colonization of the United States, which was an incredibly destructive act. It was an incredibly destructive act. And yet it was also an incredibly creative act, which has allowed this country to flourish. Every country is a result of an act of colonization and conquest, practically. Yeah, but we don't know whether we all would have been better off without it in some form, right? We can't run the... um, counter hypothetical and also you're well, you saying can that run benefit. A counter hypothetical which is you can look at countries which have done it less and been victim of it less and say is that are they better off or not and you can kind of say well, like no. maybe not but you, i don't know because you can't control for all the other yeah factors. and also you still have a world in which there is colonization and so there's a ripple effect onto those countries too i don't know i feel like really Isn't, also i just feel like i don't really know enough i mean it's a great well, set of questions well what we do know enough of is how to set the question. It seems like there are at least three things happening, which is one is the debate we've just been stumbling around in, for which we probably would all agree we're ill-suited to participate. But that is, what is the net benefit over the history of the thousand years of the monarchy um, uh, that w- we would come to some judgment on? The second is, what is due um, the longest reigning monarch in that thousand-year history and and um, and how long should it go on? And what is it about her connection with the British people that is so incredibly powerful? And then the third thing is whether this institution should continue and in what form, because people can be deeply tied to her and her 70 years of reign uh, and have no patience for the monarchy itself. Um, so those seem like three of the things that are raised by her death. I mean, I found myself so I really don't follow the British monarchy very much at all. Um, It's one of the things that I just, like, let go. I was sad when the Queen died, and but I'm suspicious of the part of myself that felt that way because it's the sort of small-c conservative stability part, right, that, like, just sees someone who represents um, this generations of history, the sense of continuity, of stability, without really thinking about, like, whether that stability was a good thing or not, who it was good or bad for, um, what the cost of it was. So you're making an argument that the cost was totally worth it, and I just am not sure that that's right. Well, I'm I'm certainly making an argument that that we shouldn't toss out the cost because there were crimes committed, which were unspeakable in in the name of the crown and because that you know there are costs i mean it just i just think it's so in a world where tradition is chucked so easily in a world filled with 
radicals in a world that moves as quickly as it does. Uh, I, I, I am a, I'm a conservative. I mean, this is, this is a, like the, the weird fact of life in, in America is that to be a, a kind of Democrat in a, in, in America these days is to be a conservative. Like I believe in, in like slowness and preserving things that exist and like that in certain forms. I mean, this is John Dickerson has taught me this and monarchs to me are fantastic. Like we have so much, so much of our world and our political world is now guided by charisma and cheap charisma and, and monarchies dilute that out of political systems. Oh my God, I just am not convinced of that at all. I mean, the little that I follow the royal family, I feel like they are sometimes all about cheap charisma. I don't know, maybe it's not they cheap. They are about, yes, <laughs> their charisma. Yes, the charisma is the charisma inheres to the royal family. And so it comes out of political systems. It stays in, everyone needs pomp. We need circumstance. We need charismatic figures. We need like people to identify with. We need stories. Uh, and when you can put that on a monarch, Instead of putting it on a politician or a political figure or a religious leader and a monarch who represents the entire nation, it feels to me it it leeches something ugly out of these other institutions and just puts it in this place where it's where it's harmless. So were they just like the Kardashians? Yes, except except they're there generation after generation and they are on the currency and they also do like work and they show up and open things. And this was its this was the this was the tradition that that Elizabeth was trained in when she was trained um uh, at a very young age to to take on the job um was that it this was explicit in the training that it had this function that allowed um it was a little bit more um not sinister but I mean it was basically it allowed the public to be enthr- enthralled with the monarchy so that the elites could run the government I mean so it's the the elites part that that um uh that was that was um slightly different than what David's describing all right that was good I enjoyed that goodbye slate plus I'll see you at a- I'll see you at Ascot I'll see you at the royal races I'll see you in the royal box we didn't we didn't even talk about the corgis and the bees, which are still my favorite. Oh, the bees! The that was magnificent. That was br- amazing. I don't know why people were angry about. I that. loved that. No, that was. I agree. That I will agree with you about. All right, bye, Slate Plus.